Welcome back to the Chaos Ball Podcast, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for tapping in. It's Memorial Day edition of the podcast. Happy Memorial Day, everyone. Everyone gets the day off work. Everyone gets the day off school if you're in school. And uh, you get to watch baseball and uh, baseball teams wear their silly little camo hats in honor of Memorial Day. So we get to watch that. But have Memorial Day. Great to have a long weekend to watch baseball, to be honest with you. Uh, but what a good week of Mariners baseball it's been. It's been a great week. Uh, I have no notes, no analysis. I just wanted to say happy Memorial Day and the Mariners had a good week of baseball. And so that's it for the pod. Thanks for listening. Obviously, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have things to say. I always have things to say. But I'm going to start it out, first of all, with a, a, som- a somber-ish sort of note. It was brought to a lot of our attentions on Mariner's Twitter a few days ago that apparently Rick Riz has been battling um, prostate cancer uh, for a couple months now. And I don't know if this was ever announced, and I had no idea just want to put that out there because Rick Riz is one of the most wonderful humans alive, to be honest with you. Uh, and he's amazing and obviously been the voice of Mariners Radio for a long, 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 long time now. Sometimes I will just tune into the radio broadcast because I don't want to hear the main broadcast. Sometimes I just want to hear Rick Riz's voice. Fantastic announcer. Sad to hear this, but hopefully he will pull through, and we're definitely all thinking about him. I wanted to just say that off-rip in case you didn't know, so we can all just think of Rick Riz, man. He is awesome. He is he is Mariners baseball for a lot of people, because uh, there's a lot of people I know who just listen on radio, and he, what a treat he is to listen to. So, thinking about Rick Riz, thinking about Rick Riz, I uh, still killing it in the booth to this day, uh, but now... That that's out of the way. You know, I've been starting with these rants, I guess. Uh, sure, I'll start off with another one. Why not? Uh, Jared Kelnick. Jared Kelnick. Let's talk a little bit about Jared Kelnick. Because his stats right now, and this doesn't include today's game, where we just walked off the Pirates to win the series. Yeah, yeah, I'll talk about it. But the stats don't include this game. They don't. It doesn't move the needle that much. He didn't have... He had, you know, an RBI today, but no, like, home runs or anything. Right now, he's hitting 277, 330, 522. It's an 852 OPS, 137 OPS plus. He's got 10 home runs. He's got a 1.5 baseball reference war, six stolen bases. He has just looked amazing. And if you told past me before the season started... That those were Jared Kelnick's stats at the end of May, or just about the end of May. They won't shift too hard before the end of the month. I would expect the offense to be top 10, like fringe top 10, like close to top 10, like at least top 15. Because if I factor in what I expected from the rest of the offense with that production from Kelnick, which I wasn't expecting at all, I would expect the offense to be good to great, and it's just not. And it's upsetting. It's upsetting. There's still a just middling offense, which is pretty annoying. He's just been a joy, obviously. Talked about him quite a bit when he, a few weeks ago, especially during that Cubs series where he was on an absolute tear. Clearly put in so much work in the offseason, tweaked the swing, crushing baseballs. Like We saw how strong he was the past couple of years when he was up. We saw the capabilities of what he could do. He just kind of needed to put it together and square the ball up and and learn to not try to just hit the shit out of everything. Like, he's really... What's impressed me and probably everyone the most who gets somewhat nitty-gritty about a baseball player is his, like, today even. Today he got a breaking ball, and he's getting a lot of breaking balls because the scattering report on him was if you throw him a breaking ball, he's not going to hit it. And that was pretty true the past two years. But this year he's staying back. He's at least... I think he's recognizing it out of the hand a little bit better. That's allowing him to keep his hands back, go in, get inside the ball, and take it the other way. He did that today. Hit the ball really hard for a double on a breaking ball. Been super impressive. It's just tough when looking at his numbers 
And yeah, if you told anyone his numbers, those numbers before the season, it'd be like, oh man, the Mares are probably in first place. They're probably, the offense is probably crushing. Nope, nope, nope. That is not true because that is just how baseball works. It does not go as expected in the slightest. That's why making predictions about baseball is a fool's errand. An absolute fool's errand. You are right, you know, maybe 1% of the time. Within reason, I guess. Depends on how you frame your predictions. But I also, it just reminded me, um, I believe, uh, I think in my preview of the Mariners, and I've had a few tweets about this in the offseason, that I, I said something along the lines of, like, going into this season in left field with a Kelnick Pollock platoon with, like, Trammell as the other option is a mistake. I do still kind of think that because Pollock has been pretty garbage. Uh, and obviously I, I thought Kelnick at his best this season would be like an average to, to decent left fielder. And he's been pretty above average so far this year. So thank God he's proven me wrong. He's, I didn't have blind optimism about him. Like a lot of Mariners fans do. And I wish that maybe I did. I don't know. That's more on Twitter, though. The blind optimism sort of deal. But he's definitely blown the expectations out of the water. I do still think I'm half right. I think signing Pollock as as the, the, the lefty platoon option was just, like, boring, not exciting, not a move you'd make, especially with a team that still needs another bat, I think. And I said that before the season, and I was like, AJ Pollock is not that bat. And Kelnick's picked up the slack, especially like he's he's proven that it's not a platoon anymore. Kelnick has said, "No, I can hit left-handed pitching. We don't need AJ Pollock." And it's not even that AJ Pollock is trying to prove himself to be in the lineup. He has not been very good, and that's not super, uh, not super surprising, really. I think, you know, I wanted them to sign another outfielder because I didn't believe in Pollock. And I didn't really fully believe in Kelnick, and I'm glad he's proven me wrong. But uh, I really didn't think he'd go out straight up and earn the number one starting left fielder spot every day like he has. And I'm glad he has. It's been awesome. But let's say, like, with the DH problems we have and Pollock not really picking up the slack there, I still think I'm a little correct in saying that was a mistake to go in with just those guys and Tramiel as your left fielders because there's still the hole in the DH spot that, needs to be filled if this team is serious. And I still think this team can go far as currently built, but it would be much better if there was another bat at the DH. Like, I really wanted to sign Masataka Yoshida, to be honest with you. I wanted Nimmo and Yoshida or my two, like, I would love if the Mariners signed those guys to play in left or right field because you could shift Teoscar Kelnick to DH or hit one of those guys at DH with Julio in center, and that would be a pretty, pretty kick-ass outfield and offense as a whole. They didn't sign either of those guys. Obviously, I think Nemo and that extension with the Mets was probably going to happen either way, so I don't know if that was even possible for him to come to Seattle. But Masataki Yoshida, man, they, I think they could have gotten him, and he's been a joy. Imagine if he was the DH on this team. Imagine how awesome that would be. That would be amazing. Like, he's another lefty. Yeah, who cares? We didn't need a right-handed hitter for left field. You signed Pollock based on very small samples of stats from the past couple seasons crushing left-handed pitching, who's 36 years old and is clear, clearly not the player you really needed. You know, I just... I, I think back to wanting Masataka Yoshida and... I grimace because he's been awesome. It's been fun to watch, but just not for my baseball team. Also, to be fair to myself, I also would have been okay with Benintendi after Yoshida signed, and Benintendi has been dreadful. So that would have been tough, a tough look for me and for the team. Uh, I don't think they'll obviously, they won't trade for an outfielder now with Kellnick playing the way he is. I think they can stick to prioritizing a first base, third base, DH sort of man. If it's an outfielder who will predominantly be DH or take Teo's spot in right field, with Teo DHing, that's fine. But really, I think the priority for this team at the deadline should be the corner infield's uh, backup slash DH spot. Because Kelnick has proven he is definitely good enough to play every day in left field, which is pretty awesome. That's my rant. I only want to touch on one more thing before a special Memorial Day edition of Baseball Reference Player of the Week. And then we'll get to manage baseball. But I saw a video on Twitter the other day, and it's from 
Um, I'll call them peer. I'll call him a peer because I'm doing a podcast and he's doing a podcast. Uh, Mookie Betts were peers in podcasting, not baseball, but he has a podcast, uh, the on, on base, it's Bleacher Report on base with Mookie Betts, uh, which is pretty fun to hear. He's, he had Kershaw on recently. It's fun to hear, uh, baseball through a player's perspective. Cause obviously they think about the game in a completely different way than most fans or, or analysts or anyone around the game of baseball. But this clip came out and Mookie was, was saying he eats really good on the road trips. He eats really good on the road trips. And then it rolled this video that he played and Mookie unzips his suitcase. And this is like in a hotel. He has like a whole ass kitchen in his suitcase. He He's pulling out strainers, measuring cups, a waffle iron. He has very neat containers with like sauces and spices. He's got like, you know, spatulas, uh, tongs, like a hold spoon, like a grater. A grit. He has a griddle. Like he's he's making himself like waffles, pancakes, bacon. He said he loves um, having the ability to come back to the hotel after a game on a road trip and just make himself a nice PB and J. But he basically said he's he's. I mean, his contract. He's he's got like ten more years and he's going to be forty. And he uh, he's like, I got to take care of my body. I got to eat right. And it's just insane to watch him pull out all this kitchen stuff from his suitcase, but I respect him. He's just chefing it up in his hotel room. It's awesome. It's awesome. I recommend looking it up. If you just look up Mookie Betts uh, and like food or road trips or something, you'll find it. And he talks about it and it's hilarious. Uh, he has a whole suitcase dedicated for his kitchen utensils. I couldn't believe he, he brought out a griddle. He brings a griddle to a hotel room. Uh, it's it's amazing. I love Mookie. He he gets better and better the more and more we learn about him. But that that's it for the five minute rant that goes more often than not over ten minutes to start the show. But now, it's the baseball reference player of the week, and with Memorial Day today, uh, while you're listening to this, maybe it's tomorrow for me while recording. I wanted to choose someone who was in the service in the major leagues, and there are a lot of baseball players who served in either World War One or World War Two because of the mandatory service during baseball. They took a break. The most famous of these guys is probably Ted Williams. I didn't choose Ted Williams. Or like Joe DiMaggio was uh, famously uh, got, his, uh, got his infantry division baseball team together and they ran through the rest of the military's baseball teams, which is pretty funny. I didn't choose Joe DiMaggio either. I chose Gil Hodges. Gil Hodges is the baseball reference player of the week this week. Definitely the most decorated player I've had on this segment. The first Hall of Famer I've had on this segment. And I chose Gil Hodges because he's a very unique, unique and interesting start to his career that relates to the military. And I'll get into it after I just read you some of his stats. He compiled a 43.8 baseball reference war over his career. 370 home runs, 273 career batting average, uh, like 1,300 RBIs, 360 on base percentage, like a career 120 OPS plus, according to Baseball Reference. He never won MVP, but he won a good amount of gold gloves and all-stars, and he was really durable. He was a very huge piece of the Brooklyn Dodgers and one of the greatest Brooklyn Dodgers, or Dodgers in general of all time one of the greatest first basemen in their history and apparently one of the best dudes ever in their organization. I've only heard and read very, people speaking very highly of Gil Hodges. And before I break down what actually happened in his career, those numbers are good. They don't scream Hall of Famer off the bat to me. And there was a whole, not controversy, but discourse around his Hall of Fame case because... It seemed to be more of one of those like fringe stat guys where if you just look at the stat sheet, he doesn't have an MVP, uh, and maybe you, you look at his stat sheet, he's got three gold gloves, eight all-stars, he won two World Series. You look at that, and it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, Hall of very good, Hall of really good, but it's the, it's the off-the-field stuff, it's the lore behind him, it's the way he went about things, it's the narrative that got him into the Hall of Fame, which is how 
a lot of guys get into the Hall of Fame, especially now. It's very narrative-driven on top of what you did on the field. And Gil Hodges did a lot of good things on the field, but also was just a part of some really crazy and, and interesting baseball moments. And I'll get into it and his his whole Wikipedia page and stuff right now. Now, pre, pre-professional baseball, he apparently was a four-sport athlete in high school. He had seven varsity letters. He had football, baseball, basketball, track. He actually declined a contract from the Tigers and went to college instead because he was hoping to be a collegiate coach. Uh, he played basketball and baseball at St. Joseph's University. And then he dropped out his sophomore year, accepting a contract for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And who signed him but Stanley Fiesel, who is a sporting goods store owner and part-time scout for the Dodgers. And that's how it worked back then in baseball. You didn't get drafted. You didn't... None of that was really a thing. Uh, You accepted a contract from a scout. That is just how it worked back then, which is pretty sweet. And... This is why I chose Gil Hodges for the Memorial Day Baseball Reference Player of the Week special. is because he was called up by the Dodgers and made his debut on August 3rd. August 3rd? Wow, I can't read. October 3rd, 1943. Which was the last game of the 1943 season. So he gets called up in 1943. On the last game of the season, he went 0 for 2 with two strikeouts and made two errors. So awful MLB debut, playing third base. And then a few days later, he entered the Marine Corps to serve in World War II. So it's hilarious when you look at his baseball reference page because the year 1943 comes up. You see one game, three plate appearances, one stolen base, one walk, two strikeouts, career OPS plus at that point zero and then 1944 1945 did not play in major or minor leagues parentheses military service so he gets called up on the last day of the season in 1943 has a terrible game a couple days later he goes and serves in world war ii in the marine corps crazy start to your baseball career that's part of why i chose him because a lot of guys were were mid playing baseball and then they went to go serve in the military. Like Ted Williams had already, I don't think he'd won MVP because I remember he won MVP the year he came back from military service, but he had already played a few seasons prior and was one of the best players in the league right when he got into the league prior to serving in the military. So it was huge for him to go serve three years. Gil Hodges made his debut, looked terrible and then went to the military service, which what a fascinating start to the career that one was uh and so he served there's not much from his military service i know he won um he won a bronze star medal with combat v5 i don't I'm, i don't know military stuff uh he was in he, he was in world war ii in battles and he received the medal so uh anyone in world war ii who received a medal in battle shout out to y'all absolutely insane that that even happened i can't even fathom that uh living in this this day and age but um, came back. He came back and was called up to the Dodgers in 1947, which, if you remember, in 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers, something else of note happened that year. Jackie, that was the same year Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier, and he was in the core of the team in Brooklyn. Jackie Robinson, Pee Reese, Carl Ferrillo. And then uh, Roy Campanella on that team, too. Remember that core? Those are the boys of summer, Brooklyn Dodgers, if you're familiar with them. So part of an iconic, iconic core of the of Dodgers history. And he really hit the ground running after he came back. Uh, he proved to be a, a regular in the team. He was going to be a catcher, but Roy Campanella emerged as a really good catcher. So he moved to first base. Uh, he proved himself to be a very solid contributor on both sides of the plate he led the nl in in put outs double plays and fielding average and in one season i mean he he was just a good performer on both sides of the ball he made seven consecutive all-star games like i said he was part of that core the boys of summer dodgers and then he was a part of the series the new york giants 
their fiercest rival versus the Brooklyn Dodgers for the NL pennant uh, in the series and the home walk-off home run by Bobby Thompson, the shot heard around the world. He was part of that uh, Brooklyn Dodgers team that lost to those New York Giants via the walk-off home run in that pennant in 1951. So already you see a little bit what I was talking about with the narrative, right? He was a part of this iconic core of the Dodgers, these iconic teams. He was in... He was in the game and a shot in the shot heard around the world. One of the most famous baseball events in the uh, in the history of baseball. Uh, he was a fan favorite in Brooklyn, apparently, and this is true to New York form. Hodges was perhaps the only Dodger regularly. Ne- <laughs> I completely messed up that sentence. I will not edit it out. Hodges was perhaps the only Dodgers regular never booed at their home park, Ebbets Field. Fans were supportive even when Hodges suffered through one of the most famous slumps in baseball. After going hitless in his last four regular season games of 1952, he also went hitless in all seven games of the 1952 World Series against the Yankees, finishing the series 0-21 for at the plate. And they lost all seven of those games on their way to losing the World Series. His slump continued into the following spring, Fans reacted with countless letters and good luck gifts, and one Brooklyn priest told his flock, quote, It's far too hot for a homily. Keep the commandments and say a prayer for Gil Hodges. And Hodges began hitting again soon afterwards and rarely struggled again in the World Series. Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe God revived his career. Uh, maybe, maybe God played a role here. But he was beloved. He was beloved. Like It's easy to see why he was an easy pick to go to the Hall of Fame when it was all said and done. Even though, again, he wasn't ever really like the best player in the league. Or honestly, you could even make a case he was never really the best player on his own team. He was on some fantastic teams. And yeah, he only... Uh, he got 75% of the vote on the Golden Days Era Committee, which was inducted in 2022 actually, which is also why I picked this. It was a very recent kind of controversy, but at the end of the day, Gil Hodges, I think, deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. But there's more to Gil Hodges. So he played his whole career with the uh, Dodgers, even moving to Los Angeles in 57 when the Dodgers moved, or I guess their first season was 58. Uh, And then in 61, there was an expansion draft, and Hodges was the original, one of the original 1962 Mets. He got selected by the Mets. And he was having some injury troubles by then in his career. And he ended up retiring and then managing the Mets. He took over uh, the Mets in 1968 after his managerial debut with the Senators in 1967. And he managed the 1969 Mets to the World Series. And this was crazy. They're known as the 1969 Miracle Mets. He, they, it was the first Mets season ever to have a winning record. They swept the Braves in their first ever National League Championship Series. And then they went on to beat the Baltimore Orioles in the World Series in five games. And they were heavily favored. The Baltimore Orioles were heavily, heavily favored to win that World Series. But no, Gil, the great Gil Hodges managed them to... The greatest Mets season of all time to that point. The 1969 Miracle Mets. And then, this is a long one, but Gil Hodges was a man, what a crazy, crazy baseball player and awesome dude it sounded like he was. Uh, Unfortunately, taken far too early from us, he, in 1972, he had a heart attack, very sudden heart attack, and uh, died eventually at the age, how old was he when he died? 47, way too young, way too young to be taken from this world. But after that, there's a bunch of quotes from his former players who were still around at that time. Like Jackie Robinson said he was the core of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, he, Duke Snyder, one of his one of his best teammates and, and friends, said Gil was a great player, but an even greater man. Johnny Padre, Podre is one of his teammates as well in the Dodgers, said, I'm sick. I've never known a finer man. Just all of his teammates, managers, everyone flooded out to say how amazing Gil Hodges was. Uh, Jackie Robinson, even uh, the story was from his wake, uh, and he, uh, Jackie Robinson was 
apparently seen crying hysterically. Uh, and Gil, this is according to Gil Hodges Jr. Uh, Robinson gave Gil Hodges Jr. a hug and said, next to my son's death, this is the worst day of my life. So the impact off the field that Gil Hodges had was immense. Uh, I think, I think this is, this is absolutely a huge reason why he finally got elected to the Hall of Fame. Uh, formally inducted again in 2022, uh, one of the 10 nominees on their Golden Days era ballot in 2021, and thank God he finally got elected. Just seemed like a guy that, at the end of the day, should have been in the Hall of Fame. He never got in on the BBWA ballots. Even the Veterans Committee never... He, he fell short. But he finally got in and inducted last year. Last year. Uh, and, and that's real good. I'm very glad for Gil Hodges and his his family and everyone who ever knew him. And his legacy runs deep in the Dodgers organization. So that's Gil Hodges. That is the baseball reference point of the week. In honor of Memorial Day, a man who started his career, played one game, and then went to the Marines to serve in World War II. Just a fascinating start to your major league career. And then you go on to be one of the more beloved Dodgers in the history of that franchise, which has had some of the most history in in baseball. So, Gil Hodges. Gil Hodges, baseball reference player of the week. Shout out to Gil Hodges. And now is the time we talk about the Seattle Mariners. Well, it was a good week. Uh, so, so, we left last week kind of, you know, reeling a little bit and lost two or three to the Sox, lost two or three to the Braves at home. And then... What is what's better than than after a little bit of a slide to get the A's to come to town, baby? They mopped the A's at home. Just an absolutely fun series to watch. Just an amazing series to watch because the A's are like a reset for most of these teams, and it's real sad how bad they are. They have ten wins. It's almost June, and they have ten wins. Ugh, it's just terrible. But the A's came to town. And thank God the Mariners handled business because a couple of the games they almost didn't. But I'm glad they got the mop, their first mop of the year. A mop is a four-game sweep as opposed to a three-game sweep. That's just a sweep. A four-game is a mop. It's a mop. It's a mop. It's a mop. And they mopped them at home. Just felt real good to do that. Put them back uh, above 500. Uh, Thank God for the A's. You had excellent pitching, enough offense. I mean, the first game of the series of the series they won 11 to 2 they they cr- everyone got in on it caballero hit uh his second home run of the year kelnick hit an absolute moonshot or not even a moonshot just a nuke 455 luis castillo goes six scoreless with eight strikeouts and then the next day it was a little bit of a closer game you get a marco start uh a marco quality start i should say and the the bullpen holds on for a 3 to 2 victory in that game then the next game, they win handedly 6-1. to one. Bryce Miller starts, and you know when Bryce Miller starts, he's just simply not going to give up any runs and throw his fastball 80% of the time, and that's what he did. Six innings, six Ks, one walk, throwing mostly fastballs, still doing it, still saying screw you to the BABIP and expected stat gods and just cruising with that insane alien fastball he has. And then the last game of the series... Another close one, three to two. Logan, great start. Really, this was an interesting one. Uh, Logan goes eight innings, gives up two earned with six Ks, going into the ninth. And this is, to, I I've, I talked a little Scott last week, but I think I tweeted it a couple weeks ago. I just wish Scott had some more like to harken back to a Mariners manager like Lou Pinella in him. Like I wish Scott had some more spice. Scott's real boring. He's real cut and dry. And I think this runs all the way up to the front office where they're analytically driven and they have a, they have a plan and they're going to stick to the plan most of the time. And I just wish Scott would, would sack up sometimes and say, hey, I'm going to go with my gut here. Because Logan going into the ninth had 77 pitches. 77. I have no doubt in my mind that Logan would have came out in that ninth, fired up, and closed that game out. Obviously, you know, it's one of those things 
that Mariners or not Mariners fans. These are just base, it's just baseball fan things where you leave Logan out for the ninth, he blows it, and then you're like, oh man, why'd you do that? The baseball fans love shitting on the outcome of of baseball when sometimes the outcome is very unavoidable no matter what you do or how you manage your bullpen. Sometimes your best bullpen guys or your best pitchers just suck and give up the lead, and sometimes there's nothing you could do. And if that happened to Logan, so be it. He had 77 pitches, spinning a gem, going into the ninth at home to to finish off a series mop against the A's. Let him pitch. Like, Seawall came in, it was great. Close the game out in a one-run game. Close it out. Fine. Whatever. I'm not saying Paul Seawall shouldn't have been in that game to win. I'm just, I would have thrown Logan out there. I'm sure Logan wanted to be out there. I sh- He is, he gets fired up. And he gets fired up to compete. And I am very confident that he was probably a little... Uh, he was probably fuming. He was probably absolutely fuming in the dugout when Scott told him he wasn't going to come out for the ninth to finish his complete game. I, I was I was mildly upset. I mean, they won the game, so whatever. But I just wish Scott would let it fly sometimes like that. And he didn't that time. They won the game, whatever. I just I wanted to say that because I, I would have put Logan back out there. I think it was a general consensus among uh, Mariners fans that we wanted to see Logan out there for the ninth to try to finish off a complete game. Partially, it's just because we don't see complete games much anymore in today's today's era. But they mop the A's. They go two games above 500, and then the Pirates come to down on Friday and for whatever reason, we decided to use juice baseballs again on Friday. 11-6. to six, The Pirates hit seven home runs. The ball was flying like I have never seen it fly before in Seattle, honestly. Uh, I think, every, and it wasn't like an especially warm night. It's still May in Seattle. It's not sweltering hot. That's going to, and these balls, they weren't cheapies. These home runs. Some of them were just fly. It reminded it reminded me of 2019. It reminded us all of 2019. I mean, the Pirates had a franchise record of seven home runs. The Mariners themselves hit two home runs. Nine home runs in Seattle in a game in May. Weird. The Pirates win that one 11-6. It's just... Wow. Like, what happened? Like, it, it, it legit just looked like the MLB said, we're going to use... Ugh, I said the MLB. I've been really trying not to say it because that's just not right. The Major League Baseball is just not right. I'm trying. I'm trying my hardest. It's a habit I had from my youth of saying that. I will not. I will try not to. But listen, I think Manfred was like, hey, what if what if we spikes things up a little bit in Seattle for this for this opening game? Oh, George Kirby versus Mitch Keller, you want a pitcher's duel? No. Eleven to six. Like, what the hell? What the hell happened? It was 2019 baseballs. Everyone is convinced. And it really looked like it. Because it wasn't just pitchers being bad and leaving pitches in the zone. Like, a couple of them were mistakes. Two of the home runs, one to Sawinski and one to, I'm forgetting, I maybe to Capita Marcano. Kirby, it was, it. if you just look at, like, the MLB at bat pitch locator, it'd be like, oh, those are bad pitches, but... They were breaking balls that were on the edge of the plate, but in the center of the zone. And if a guy can sit back on a breaking ball that's middle of the plate, it doesn't matter. Like if, and if it's touching the zone, a lot of them are going to be able to hit it pretty far if they can square it up, especially if they if they see it's a breaking ball. Breaking balls, sometimes the location can be on the corner, but they can just hang up in the zone for a little bit too long, and that's some of what Kirby's, Kirby's did. But some of these home runs were, were pitches that otherwise probably would have been flyouts if it hadn't been for the baseball. Just so wacky and so random that that happened, especially going to a game. George Kirby versus Mitch Keller. They've been two of the best pitchers in in all of MLB this year, and they both got shelled. So that was interesting. The next day, we uh, the Mariners take the victory, 5-0 to zero over the Pittsburgh Pirates. Luis Castillo is back to being more Luis Castillo-like. He went six innings, two walks, ten strikeouts. Looked awesome. Looked swaggy up there in the teal unis. 
and just an overall very good game, very fun. And then today, Marco had a had a very quality, quality, non-quality start. I think he went five and two-thirds uh, with two runs today. And really, um, they tried to blow it. And then, thank God, in the 10th inning, oh, oh, they served Gino up the meatiest, meatiest beach ball, meatball I've ever seen. A slider, middle, middle, and Gino sent it into the pen with ease. And they win the game 6-3. to three. They've won 6 of their last 7. 6-1 six and one in the homestand with the Yankees coming to town the next 3 days. And it was just great to watch. The, the offense has slightly came alive. Uh, the pitching has been very consistent, albeit except for the George Kirby random howler of a start on Friday with the juice balls. I'm not putting that on George. The dude has given up 3 home runs all year and he gave up 3 on Friday. Like, tell me how that makes sense. It doesn't. That's what. It doesn't make sense. But the Lads are playing well. They're three games above 500 right now. Uh, They are 28 and 25. Still some games back of the the Rangers and the Astros and right, right there with the Angels in this division right now. But feeling better about the offense, particularly because Julio has actually started to to wake up a little bit and play more. And his balls in play are skewing a lot more to his expected stats than his raw stats right now. He's, he never really stopped hitting the ball hard. His K rate was a little bit higher, but his expected stats were decently higher than his raw stats. This was like kind of right after the Braves series. And then the past week, he's been... Scorching. I mean, past 15 days, even he's been hitting really well. So glad that he's getting a little bit more lucky, but also his just his general approach has looked a little bit better. And I think that comes with seeing, you know, hard hit balls go for hits instead of outs. I think some of it is just a mindset where you, you, no matter what you do, sometimes you're just going to get out up there. And that's what it felt like with him for a little while. But the last 15 games, it's not including today where he hit another home run today. Oh, no, no, I lied. It is including today. So last 15 games, he's got 60 at-bats. He's hitting 300, 373, 500 with two home runs, six walks, 17 strikeouts, three stolen bases. So he's looking more like himself. There was there was little doubt in my mind and most people's minds about Julio. We know how good he can be, and his batted ball stats still looked good despite his batting average being almost below the Mendoza line. So we knew there was some regression to the mean coming and we're seeing it. He's raised his average like 30 points the past week. He's looked more like Julio. He's he's still smiling, making plays, being 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 a great dude. So never worried about him, but more it's encouraging he's started to to elevate the ball a little bit more as well as hit the ball hard, but some of his hard hit ground balls and line drives are going for hits now instead of outs as they were for a decent, decent couple of weeks there, it felt like. That's part of what the offense has been up to. JP has been scorching. JP has been hitting the ball hard all year. It's been awesome to watch. Not only is he walking a lot, but he's hitting the ball really hard, which is amazing to see. I love his swing. He had a couple home runs this week. Uh, just been been awesome. Been great to watch him at the plate. Been one of our best hitters and most consistent hitters this year. Tails looked a little bit better the past week. He's I think he's just made contact with more balls. When he makes contact, it's generally pretty good. It's just this year his his strikeout rate and chase rate have ticked up a little bit compared to the past couple of years, and you can kind of see it. Uh, I'm not going to compare him to Jared Kelnick last year, but it's like if you have a well placed breaking ball. He's probably going to swing at it below the zone and not hit it. That's what it's looked like for him a little bit the past couple weeks. But he's still fine. He's still ultimately going to be a high strikeout, high home run, power hitting kind of guy, and that's okay. Otherwise, like today, Jared Kelnick and Julio both had good games at the plate. And really, I don't. This team isn't as isn't. It doesn't go as far as Julio can take them because there's still a good amount of potential in this lineup. But with Jared Kelnick and Julio both hitting well at the same time, I really think this team can beat anyone. Just with the pitching and the defense and, and like the staff and the starting staff and the bullpen, the defense, 
And if those two guys are both hitting well at the same time, I really do think this team can beat anyone. I don't think that's crazy to say. We just haven't really seen them this year hit well at the same time. And, you know, knock on wood, they're both seeing it pretty well right now going into this Yankees series. So we'll see. We'll see, but it's looking good. Like, this offense is miles better, obviously, when they're both hitting well. That's not rocket science. It's just, uh, it's been so bad that we're we're not used to seeing more more than three runs on the uh, on the scoreboard and still there's there's holes in the offense but it's looked a little bit better and honestly again part of that is because the A's came to town and that's why I'm feeling a little bit better about the offense and the Pirates coming to town reminded everyone of Carlos Santana he got an ovation in Seattle what a what a flash in the pan culture guy he became last year because of his just timely home runs. like Every home run in a Mariners uniform for him felt like it came after the eighth inning in a very big spot. And a lot of them did. Like He had that huge three-run home run against the Blue Jays. He had so many clutch hits down the stretch in September last year. Adored himself to the fans. Uh, clearly became a really good guy in the clubhouse. I know Scott has said wh- like what a mentor he was to Julio last year and how that definitely helped him just be as consistent as he was uh, and having a veteran mentor as a young guy in the MLB is, can be in, I said the MLB again in major league baseball is huge. And it begs the question, why didn't they bring him back? If he was such a big culture guy in the clubhouse and you saw it too, when he got on the field during BP before Friday's game, Julio and Gino were obviously, they were, they were yelling Spanish. They were yelling. I don't know. I don't speak Spanish. They were yelling something in Spanish at him. They were shooting the shit with him. He he hugged uh, Perry Hill, the infield coach. Well, that was like the first thing he did was was hug Perry Hill. He hugged Scott Service. He I saw him uh, giving Sam Haggerty a little bit of shit, and then he talked to Julio and Gino for a while. It's clear he was beloved in the clubhouse. He was beloved by the fans. Obviously, the coaching staff probably liked him. Just seemed like an all around amazing dude to have in your clubhouse who also, hint, hint, can play first base and is very okay with playing DH as well and backing up first base, why didn't they bring him back? He signed for, I don't even know, 7 to $9 million. So I, I think it would have taken 7 to $10 million for one year to bring him back. I know that's what he signed for with the Pirates. I think 8 sounds correct to me, and I could look it up, but I know it's in that range. That's not breaking the bank. And I think off the field, it's like even if he didn't have a great year at the plate, which I still think baseline, he's going to give you pretty good at bats. He's a very professional, professional hitter, you know? And he came up so clutch for you last year, and he was such a good guy in the clubhouse. The fans loved him. He liked being there, clearly. And he clearly likes being in Pittsburgh, but I think at the end of the season, if... If they're like, hey, you want to just stick around next year? We'll give you $9 million for, for another year, and let's run it back. Would he have said no? Like, did he want to go to the Pirates that bad? I, I just find it hard to believe they couldn't have brought him back for cheap. And it's one of those things I've learned in it, while playing out-of-the-park baseball. Is partly, sign Austin Hedges if you can because his leadership skills brings the team together and raises the morale, and that gets you gets you wins in that game. And I think somewhat, it's important in real life. It's so important to have a good good clubhouse, good dugout culture. I think it translates to, to wins on the field. I don't know if there's stats to back that up, but he was a mentor to Julio. A lot of the guys loved him. Why not bring him back? I don't know. We should, we should have just stolen him. He might be, still be in Seattle. The game just ended. Can we just keep him? And if, if the Pirates are out of contention, which they very well might be by the deadline, even if they're, you know, hovering around 500, I don't think they're going to push for the playoffs with their current timeline. They might trade him, and the Mariners could trade for him. I would be all for it. I doubt it would really take that much. It would probably take one low-end prospect, because Carlos Santana, at the end of the day, is not a super valuable trade piece, but he's an expiring deal for them. Maybe they just keep him the rest of the year, 
but it would be nice to have him back in Seattle. And it just kind of annoyed me after seeing him this weekend be so well received by the players, coaches, and fans that they didn't just throw $8 million for a year at him. Like, what's what's the harm in that? At, even if he's putting up Colton Wong numbers at the plate, Colton Wong isn't a clubhouse guy like he is. I think the intangibles would have been really valuable to this team. But that's the end of my Carlos Santana rant. Shout out to Carlos Santana, though. Great dude. Seemingly very, very cool guy. And now I would like to just touch on uh, one thing. I'm going to read you Adam Frazier's 2023 statistics. He's hitting 250, 326, 419 for a 745 OPS plus. And uh, just, just so tough. Just so tough. He has six home runs. He had three last year. He had five the year before. He has six. It's not even June. He played 156 games in Seattle last year and had four home, or no, three home runs. He has six, six with the Orioles this year. I don't know if it's the Orioles, and I honestly trust the Orioles to develop hitting way better than the Mariners, and it shows. He has a 108 WRC+. plus. He's got 0.7 Fangraphs war. How many, what's his BRF war? 1.1. What the hell? He's got six stolen bases. He's playing good defense. Like, come on. It's too on-brand for the Mariners f- to have that happen while they bring in Colton Long. He's the worst player in the league. Like, uh, it's just, that's a classic Mariners move if I've ever seen one. There's even, even when the team is run pretty competently, they still cannot escape being the Seattle Mariners sometimes. And that's what you got to love about them. You know, they're true to their core a lot of the time. And then to close the show, I wanted to just look at the playoff odds of the AL West and compare them to the start of the year because quite a bit has changed in uh, in the two months we've played baseball. At the start of the year, I'll, I'll start from the bottom. Uh, the Oakland A's, and this is according to Fangraphs and their playoff odds calculator. Uh, at the start of the year, the A's playoff odds were 1.2%. And now they're at zero percent. And I'll be honest, I, I've, I don't think I, I don't know if I've ever seen zero percent this early. And I don't know. Let's see when they went to zero percent. They were dubbed zero percent officially on April. 27th. I don't think I've ever seen a team hit zero that early in the season. Right now, the Rockies are also at 0%. And I think part of this with the A's and the Rockies is the division's also really good because you have... Oh, the Rays are at zero. No. No, the Rays have... Or the not the Rays, the Red Jesus. The, the Reds, they have a percentage even. The Nationals even have 0.1% to make the playoffs. Uh, the Royals have 0.1% to make the playoffs, and I think it's because their divisions are a little bit weaker than the AL West, and for the Rockies and AL West, like those, you know, I think that factors in a little bit here. But 0% on April 27th, I think that's the earliest I've seen a team go down to zero. It's impressive to even be at zero, because Fangraphs throws you 0.1% odds based, like this, I thought, I didn't even know you could go to zero this early in the year. That's impressive. And the Rockies are only eight games back of the of of the what Diamondbacks? Yeah, the A's are are ten and forty five, forty six. They're it's just so bad. It's so bad. Uh, but what has changed for them? So they went down from one point two to zero. Cool. The uh, team to start the year with the fourth lowest playoff odds, and they were very close. The Texas Rangers. Started the year at 37.7%, and they're at 80% now to make the playoffs. The Seattle Mariners, they started the year at 40.5%. They are now at 25.2% to make the playoffs. The Angels started at 48%. They're right around the Mariners right now at 245 so slightly lower than the Mariners. And then the Astros started at 79% to make the playoffs, and they sit at 81.6. So them and the A's really haven't changed too much. The Rangers have shot up uh, a good, what, what is that, 42% almost. 
the Mariners have shot down about 15%, same with the Angels. So, I mean, obviously it's it's not surprising given the way the records have shaken out right now. The Astros are 31 and 21, Rangers 33 and 19. They've been playing great ball. And then really it's interesting. They they break it down division, clinch by, clinch wild card, make playoffs, win win World Series. So, the A's are obviously at zero for all of those. The Angels right now, they're giving them a 20, yeah, 20. Right now, they're giving the Angels a 20.9% chance to make the playoffs. Oh, these just changed, like, right uh, right before I was uh, looking at this. The Angels are at 20.9% to make the playoffs and 16.8% for a wild card berth, apparently. They're giving them a 1% chance to win the World Series. The Mariners are a robust 1.4% to win the World Series and 25.7 to make the playoffs. They're still giving the Astros a 51.8% chance to win the division with the Rangers at like 39% to win the division. And clinching a wild card berth, they have the Rangers at a 38% right around their division. So really, the Fangraphs right now does expect the Astros to still win the division. And right now, overwhelmingly, it expects the Rangers to be one of the three wildcard teams in the AL. And I, I generally wouldn't disagree with how the the Rangers are playing right now. And if you haven't, go look at the Fangrass playoff odds because the AL Central playoff odds and the NL Central playoff odds are hilarious. Like, the top teams in the other divisions have, like, 45% to make the playoffs, 40, you know, 80% to make the playoffs. The Braves are at 98% to make the playoffs. The, Do- the Even the Padres are at 55%. Then you go to the Centrals, and, like, these teams, like the Twins, they have a 73% chance to make the playoffs, but then a 7.6% chance to clinch a bye. Like, it knows these teams are bad, despite the fact that they have to, one of them has to win the division. <laughs> it's just funny to look at these percentages. But right now, again, the Mariners, they sit at 25.7% to make the playoffs. And really, it makes sense with what they've done so far this year. But uh, that's the consensus from Fangraphs. It, it, they, they like the Rangers, what they've done. They don't like what the Angels have done so far. And they're middling with the Mariners, which is how I feel about them as well. But uh, good week. Good week of Mariners baseball. We got the Yankees in town. We'll see how we do against them. They're, our pitching, honestly, should be able to to shut down this offense handedly. Knock on wood, I say that. with Without Aaron Judge in mind, that's obviously the man to watch out for. But got some good fellows on the bump. We got all the young guys. We got Miller, Bryce Miller, Logan Gilbert, and George Kirby. So we'll see what they can do. But that is it for this podcast. So thank you for listening this far. Appreciate it. Uh, Of course, have a good rest of your day, and obviously, go Mariners.